This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Last week, I contrasted how Paul writes to the church in Corinth with another letter that's in the New Testament. It was when Paul writes to the church in Galatia. Now, the Galatians had a completely different uh, problem. See, the Galatians lived in a community where there were these guys called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were very committed to the law of God. They were strict, strictly religious people. And so they were saying, look, yes, you need to follow Jesus, but you also need to really obey all of the laws of God, including being circumcised. And not only do you follow Jesus, but you also have to do these things. So in Galatia, the problem was not licentiousness, but legalism. And both are extremely deadly. Right? One says, ah, it doesn't matter what I do. God doesn't really care how I live. I can live any way that I want. I can throw off the law of God. The other way says, I can earn my standing before God by obeying the law. It was fascinating to me, as I mentioned last week, is how strongly Paul speaks to the Galatians. He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? How can you believe in this false gospel? And so Paul has this sharp word for those who would try to earn their relationship with God by their works. But when Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, he's almost gentle. He's thanking God for them. He, he loves them. He loves the Galatians enough to tell them the truth about who they are, but he loves the Corinthians enough to know where they stand and the life that they've come out of. And it's a lesson for us in terms of how we approach. Now, the great news is the Bible is all true. And there are probably some ways that each of us try to earn our salvation by obeying the law. And there are probably all ways that we would say, oh, that law doesn't apply to me. And so the good news is that God gives us this wonderful picture of how we can respond to the gospel. And so we're focusing now on 1 Corinthians, these, uh, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, to try to understand how do we recalibrate our lives, not based on some human philosophy, not based on the next fad uh, way of living, but based on the truth of what the gospel is and says about who we are and who we're called to be. So if you're willing, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world 
even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your holy word, and we pray that you would reveal yourself to us through it, that we would be able to hear what you've got to say, and that we'd be able to apply what it is you're saying to us, that we would hear and receive the gospel, and that it would change us to live in your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever encountered a word that you thought meant something but then means something else? Uh, sometimes uh, we encounter these words like outlaw. What do you think the word outlaw means? We often uh, picture like Robin Hood is an outlaw because he's broken the law. But it actually means a person excluded from protection of the law. In the historical sense, Robin Hood is not an outlaw because he robs from the rich. He is an outlaw because he has lost all legal protection. That means me or you or anyone, Sheriff of Nottingham, could legally stab old Robin in public and not be prosecuted for it because he is outside the law. What do you think the word scan means? Scan. Most people think it means to skim, but it actually means to thoroughly examine something point by point. It came from a fourth century word, which means uh, counting off metric feet. Anytime I can get a, a reference to the metric system in there, I want to do it. Scam, skim, scan means counting off metric feet. So in poetry, scan was synonymous with a close examination until later on in the 1920s it became, it meant the, the opposite. What is a wise guy? What's a wise guy? Is a wise guy a man of wisdom? Is a wise guy a man who considers what God's word says and applies it humbly and joyfully into his life? Or is a wise guy a cocksure and conceited person, often insolent, a smart aleck? We know the difference, right? What's a wise guy? That's what a wise guy is. Hey, come on, forget it. Do we want to be wise guys or wise men and women? We know the difference. And these definitions are important. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Because think about this. He's, he's, he's ministering to them in a Greek context where the philosophers, the Greek philosophers, and those that foretell wisdom have been on the streets and in the culture telling them the wisdom of man. And so Paul wants to counter what the wisdom of the people have been saying with the good news of the gospel. But Paul also recognizes that within the church, there are Jewish people. They have a background of the Old Testament. So he has a mixed audience. And so he's trying to address both people by helping them to see that we can't follow the Jewish practice, we can't follow the Greek practice, but there's a third way. 
And that's the gospel way of understanding how we are to live our lives. In the first section, Paul begins to talk about God's folly. He speaks about the foolishness of God. He says the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Here's what he means. Verse 1 says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of cross of the cross is folly. What is folly? That's a disdain for what is sensible. Folly is nonsense. It's doing or believing that which is for fools. Paul reminds us that the Lord says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, for God makes foolish the wisdom of the world. This is sometimes hard for us to, to accept because there's a tendency for us to think, well, we're right about everything. And now we don't actually say, I'm right about everything, but if we thought we were wrong, we would have a different opinion. And so we essentially say, I'm right about everything until you convince me. But often when I'm presented with facts and real data, I can't receive it because I'm too um, committed to the old way. Metric system. Anyway, so... Just kidding. You can do any kind of system of measurement that you want to do. The imperial system is fine. I'm, I'm a metric guy. But here's the thing. How many things throughout history have people really been committed to and really believe, and now we look back on them and say, I can't believe that you ever actually believe that. How many people still in this room, raise your hand, please, and stand up and say, I do, believe that the world is flat? See, nobody. Nobody did. Kyrie Irving still does, I think. Uh, maybe some others, but we don't believe that anymore. But it was something that everyone believed. And even, even the church struggled with this idea because they, they thought, well, the earth is the center of the universe. And we realize now that it's not. And it was hard for them to believe. How many of you have ever gone to the doctor and the doctor said, okay, I got these leeches over here and we're going to go ahead and treat you with this because of your inflammation, right? Hopefully that hasn't happened to you. If, you, if it has, get a new doctor. But there was a long time where people believed that. And here's what's true. There are things that you believe right now, things that I believe right now, that just aren't true. And it's going to take somebody convincing me. Hopefully I'll be humble enough to understand and look at it. But there, there are things that, that our grandchildren are going to look at us and say, I can't believe that you believe that. I mean, think about the people of Corinth. A dying man on a cross? A king? That would be hard to believe. Someone being crushed by his enemies certainly has no power to overcome. The Greeks trusted in their own history of philosophy and wisdom. They exalted the standards of their pagan philosophies and poets. Ancient Greece was well known as the seat of many influential philosophers, some that we still know and influence today, Aristotle and Plato. The Greeks took great pride in their philosophical sophistication. Their loyalties were not primarily to the empirical, but to that which was rational according to their own fallen standards. And so many Greeks rejected the gospel because it didn't meet their standards of human wisdom. On the other hand, the Jews, Paul says, demand signs. The gospel accounts, the stories of the Bible, record that the Jews repeatedly requested signs from Jesus to prove that he was actually God. But even the miracles that he did perform did not satisfy them because they wanted him to do it when they wanted in the way that they wanted. They reasoned that the true Messiah would provide whatever proof the Jews required. And for this reason, 
many of the Jews rejected Jesus. Well, that's back then, right? What about now? Today, many people look to the wisdom of the world. Here it is, the American dream. You should have it. How many of us have bought into that idea? It's a, it's a preconceived notion that you're going to do better than your parents, and that's just the way it is. The economy is going to continue to grow. Everything is going to get better, and your grandchildren will be better off than you were. It's a false promise that by having material goods that you can really find true happiness. That the best life is available to you through having products and goods at your fingertips. You simply need to press the button and the, thing, the package comes within two hours. Being whoever you want to be, it's called expressive individualism. You can define who you are. That's the wisdom of the day. I can be whoever I want to be. I simply need to change some things around. I can have a new body, a new gender, a new family, just by imagining it or dreaming it. And others look to signs. Show me a miracle, God, and if you do, then I'll believe. But if you don't give me success, if you don't save my family member when I need it most, if you don't protect my safety when I must have it, then you really don't exist. For certainly, you couldn't know what's best for me. Only none of us are promised those things. We're not promised financial success. We're not promised to do better than our parents. We're not promised to get a miracle just in the nick of time. The Bible says that we're going to have trouble, that the godly will be persecuted and will suffer in a similar way how Jesus suffered. If we approach life thinking we're going to get our best life now and then we experience suffering, then we get mad at God. Only we didn't have a right understanding of who God is. And so that's why we explore the scriptures and begin to understand him for who he really is. What God promises is not happiness, but his presence. Verse 24 says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To the world, a dying man on a cross is foolishness. It's folly. But in God's economy, it's power. Paul continues in the next section, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Things even that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that it's written, let one who boasts boast in the Lord. Here we see that it's through God's weakness that we receive this wisdom. You can understand how the Corinthians likely struggle with this. We want a God of power. We want a God of, to conquer. And here God reveals his weakness. But the good news is that Paul is speaking to the Corinthians just like he's speaking to us. Just regular people. Not noble people. Not powerful people. Not necessarily wise by human standards. But he reminds them that through God, through his weakness, he shames the strong and the powerful. And this is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Throughout history, we see that those who are noble, those who are powerful, those who believe that they are special and significant, have all fallen. Every kingdom that's ever existed sits in a pile of rubble eventually. 
the most powerful men who've ever lived lie in a grave somewhere. God chose what is low and despised in the world. You can see how those who take pride in themselves would not want to be associated with God if he willingly associates himself with those who are low and those who are despised. There's a tendency for us to want to be connected to those who are powerful, to the significant, to the meaningful. Most people you know are not posting pictures of themselves on social media with the homeless person that they met down the street. It's always the celebrities and the so-called important people, the ones who can take the leather ball and put it in the orange ring, the one who can move the ball, the, yellow, the, the, the leather ball, and cross it across the white line. Those are our heroes. Those are the ones we cherish and revere. Let me take my picture with you. That was an amazing dunk that Jaw had last night. Did you guys see that? Go back and watch it. Like, come on, it's a poster. Nevertheless, the best dunkers of all time will all die. And Jesus will reign forever. But see, at the end of our life, we're going to stand before God. And God's not going to say, how many points did you score? Did you hustle on every play? You're not a shooter, but did you get rebounds? Did you hit the right note in every service? You hit a lot of right notes, Gene, okay? We're believing that. Did you make all the money that you could have made? No, he's not going to say those things. He's going to say, did you know me? Did you know my son? Did you know my love for you? Did you know what I did for you? You don't have to be of noble birth. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to be able to dunk. You don't have to make a lot of money. You simply need to respond to, to the fact that I've come down in weakness so that I can get to know you, so that I can be part of your life because you're that important to me. Yes, I'm the high and mighty, holy, righteous judge of all of creation, and yet I took on flesh so that I could know you so that I could be in relationship with you, that I could forgive your sin because it has separated you from me. But I love you so much, I want to be in relationship with you no matter who you are, no matter the brokenness that you've experienced. Should we use our talents to the best of our ability? Absolutely. Especially when we give God the glory. But you see, God is just as pleased with us on our worst day as he is on our best day. God loves us in Christ when we struggle to believe. That day when you yelled at someone that you love, God still loves you. When you don't read your Bible the way that you planned to read your Bible, God still loves you. God loves the weak. He loves the weak in faith. It's only admitting that we're weak that we can be made strong in faith. The more we think that we have all the answers, the, the farther we are away from God. It's only in submitting to him that we find true weakness we see that God was weak in the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. But he did so so that we could know him and know his love for us. And so it's that wisdom of God that we receive through Christ and his weakness that gives us then the power of God. Verse 1 of chapter 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. He was with them in weakness and fear and trembling. His speech and message were not with plausible words, but with a demonstration of the power of God, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Even Paul, the man who helped to start the church, one of the most significant Christians who's ever lived, reminds them that it's not his ingenuity. It's not his being articulate. It's not his high energy. Hey, let's get going for the gospel, guys. It's not him being amazing that transforms people's lives. The power doesn't come from a dynamic leader. The power comes from God himself. Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, the gospel is this announcement about what God has already done. It's not instructions on what you're supposed to do. The gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again. That's the gospel. That's what God did. We always respond in light of what God has done. It's not a rule book or a guidebook or instructions for us. It's always a response. And you see, the more we know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified in this life, the more we live in power. Not power to overthrow, not power to dominate, but the power to have peace in life. The power to serve others with no strings attached. The power to love lavishly, to give generously, to rejoice faithfully. It's like a lens with which we see the world. See, in the same way that telescope allows us to see something really, really far away, something that's not available to us through the naked eye, or the way the microscope through that lens opens up a new world to us that's already there, that exists, that we just can't see because of where we are, the gospel enables us to see, to see who we really are. It's like a mirror. It shows us our brokenness and our sin because of Christ's perfection. We realize, wow, we are really far from God in one sense. And yet, because Christ has come to us, we are really close to God in another sense. Not because we've done great things to get to God, but because God has done great things to get to us. And because of that, then we have power. We have a sense of joy and of peace, a sense of confidence about what we do, a sense of purpose and a sense of mission about where God is calling us to the, to the office, to the classroom, to wherever God takes us in our neighborhood to be his person We don't have to be fired up. We don't have to be a preacher. We don't have to be a great singer. We're just us, living confidently with power in the gospel in our daily rhythm in life. See, it allows us to see God's kingdom at work in the world and the simplicity and the beauty of the regular rhythms and the means of grace, of worship, of fellowship, of exercising the spiritual disciplines or or celebrating the sacrament of baptism with a family. Another child presented as a member of the covenant kingdom. There are moments where it can be big and splashy and there's a big giant, God taught me this. But it's also the regular rhythms in the life of the mundane, the menial tasks of following Jesus each and every day where God meets us. It doesn't feel like a whole lot is going on, but you look back after 10 years and you say, wow, God has been faithful. God has provided a community for me. God has cared for me. God has led me through many difficult things. That's the power of God. It allows us also to see a preferred future. We look around our world and we say, these things aren't right. There's injustice in the world. This weekend we honor Dr. Martin Luther King who saw a preferred future. 
a broken person who said, this isn't right, and I'm going to speak about this. We shouldn't be judging people by the color of the skin, but by the content of their character, and was persecuted for that, and was killed for that. But he saw the preferred future, and he chose to speak about it and to live into it. Now, we may not be people that draw audiences and are memorialized in significant ways with our own holiday, but each one of us has a preferred future that we can see because of our relationship with God. We can see injustice. We can see things that aren't fair. And we have the opportunity to step in and to stand in and to represent the gospel in these ways. And it's our privilege and joy to do it because guess who stood in for us? Right? There was injustice. There's a just law that I was breaking, sinning against God, and Jesus stepped in. He stepped in and said, brother, I need to rescue you from yourself. And when I realized what he's done to rescue me, he paid the price. He laid down his life for me. Well, then wouldn't I want to live with power to fight injustice in this world? You see, my faith is not just about me studying the Bible and me growing and getting an understanding of the story of the Bible and learning all these facts about Jesus. It is that. But it's also about the transformation that takes place as I've encountered this holy God then that power that God gives me helps me to say, how can I use my gifts, my talents, my abilities, my passions to create a just world, to give what I've been given? Right, we baptize our children because we are giving something that we've been given, a heritage of faith, a life of joy, membership in a church family, and we hand that down to the next generation, believing and praying and seeking to, to know that our children would raise up their children in the same way. So what is it that God is calling you to do in response to what God has done? That's always the question. What's learn one thing and do one thing? What are you walking out of here with today? Do you need to know the power of God? Has God given you a gospel lens now to see his grace in a new way? That you can be in relationship with him? It doesn't matter what's happened in your past. It doesn't matter the brokenness that you've experienced. It doesn't matter how you've been hurt or how you hurt others, that God is desiring to be in relationship with you and you can enter into community and communion with him. Maybe you need to hear that. Maybe to receive that grace and just go, Lord, I've been far from you for so long, but I want to enter in a relationship with you because I know what you've done for me in Christ. You receive that and you rejoice in that. And you experience that. And as that makes a difference in your life, then, then you say, okay, now what... what God, how do you want to teach me about that power? Are you struggling with anxiety? Are you nervous about things? Are you struggling with fear? Are you struggling with anger? Do you need to forgive? And we, we see if we experience anger, we, we let Christ remind us of what he's done, that God is not angry with us so we can forgive. If I struggle with anxiety, I know that God is sovereign over all things and that he's with me. Even though I feel anxious, I know that God is in control and I can trust him. If I feel lost or lonely, I know that God is with me every moment of the day. He, he, he left heaven to come and be with me. And he's also put me in a church family. He's put me in community to help me to be connected. And he'll give me the confidence to say, I need help. I need a friend. I'm going to be a friend. How do you respond to what God has done? Not with the wisdom of the world that just says, hey, make your own way and get, get away from people. Just do your own thing. But the wisdom of God that says be connected to the church, be connected to the bride of Christ, the family of God, the body, 
so that you can glorify and honor Jesus and then go out into the world with the message of the gospel, the good news. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.